You are tuned in to the new Numa Godcast, hosted by Norman Brown, aka Professor, and Justin Foster, where we address the taboo from a biblical view. Our podcast is all about real talk with new life. And quite frankly, you'll either love it or you won't, because we deal with tough topics that the church rarely touches. Somebody's got to do it, and that's why we exist. So just sit back, chill, and enjoy the ride, because it's going to be good. Peace. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm doing really well, Norman. Thanks. That's good. You know, I wanted to um, I wanted to start out with letting you kind of introduce yourself in a you know in a few sentences or whatever, letting people know who you are, and um, just so they can kind of get a, a a little introduction to you. Great, sounds good, Norman. My name is Dave Evans. I'm 60 years old and uh, married with. Uh, two grown daughters, adult daughters, um, currently living in the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, my wife and I just moved here from Lancaster, Pennsylvania about a year ago now. And so we're part of the church at Baltimore. Uh, I work in Washington, D.C. That's what brought us here, a, a new office that I started up there. And uh, yeah, we'll find out a lot more about my life in the in the questions that you ask, but that's kind of an overview of, of where, where, where I am right now. Okay, sounds good. So I just want to say for the purpose of the audience, you know, I met Dave at the church that I attend, and um, the thing about him is that as I started to engage with him, you know, I could tell that he had some valuable experience that um where he could share some stories and stuff like that, that would be really good for those that are out there looking for any kind of inspiration or wisdom or, you know, things of that nature. Maybe they're trying to, you know, see how other believers have, you know, lived their lives and how they've overcome things and stuff like that. And so, you know, as I was talking to him, I just felt like, yeah, I definitely need to have him on the on the podcast because, He's one of those kind of people. So, you know, I like to have it where we have people on the show that are interesting, um, that have things uh, to share that will inspire others. And um, and it kind of goes back to um, a while ago when I used to hear men of God specifically, I would say men of God, but um, they would talk about things and how, you know, they would talk about how to, um, I guess, deal with types of situations and whatnot, and they would pretty much give you a biblical story, but they would never share anything about their lives. And that always bothered me. And um, it seems like we're now in a generation that's more transparent about their lives, so they tend to share more things and talk about stuff that they've encountered and things of that nature. But out of that, being birthed out of that, you know, I came to a place where I just wanted to hear stories. I wanted to hear the story that someone has of how they overcame situations, what their testimony is, where they came from, and how they got to where they are today. So that's pretty much the gist of all of the interviews that we do on on um, Nunuma is to bring out those stories. It's like those those victories that they encounter. So uh, having said all that, you know, um, I'm curious, Dave, like I know you're from Pennsylvania. I want to know, like, what was it like for you growing up in, in, in the kind of family that you were in? Um, tell us about your childhood. Yeah, thanks, Norman. So I did. I was born in the city. I say city. It was a very small city. It had 100,000 people was the city of Scranton, Pennsylvania. And Scranton is, is known for being uh, the, the place where The Office was filmed. So everybody who knows the TV series The Office <clears throat> knows about Scranton. And that's where I was born. I, first, I spent the first eight years of my life in a neighborhood <clears throat> in one of the, was actually in the city of Scranton, but kind of on the outs, outskirts, uh, the Green Ridge area. 
And so my early childhood was very much uh, early 1960s, you know, huge amount of kids out on the street playing football, playing touch football. We used to say car on, car off. We'd play sports out on the streets, basically. And um, you had to run around parked cars and catching passes, played hide-and-seek, great escape, all kinds of tremendous games. So I think about my youth. I grew up in a family, three kids, uh, parents. Uh, my parents loved each other. They never got divorced. Uh, my mom passed away uh, a couple of years back, and they were, I think, married for 57 years. So I was very blessed, Norman, to be in a family where it was it was super, super stable. Uh, at the age of eight, we moved to a suburb of Scranton called Clark Summit. Now, Clark Summit was known as being uh, a wealthier suburb, um, snobbier people. So I was, you know, it was a bit of a shock for me to go there. Um, and, and I have to say, and this is strange uh, in this day and age, but I grew up in a place where the entire school district that I was in uh, had no people of color in it. So we were all white people, which was the strangest thing in the world, right? So I had no no real sense of any of what diversity looked like in my school or anything. We didn't have any Latino kids, certainly didn't have any black folks, uh, maybe a couple of Asian kids, but, you know, that was my upbringing. So, um, but from a very early age, I just had this desire to know people who didn't look like me, who didn't act like me. Um, my best friend was a Korean-American kid, and somehow God drew me to him and drew us together, and we were good buddies all throughout school. Um, and I think God planted a seed in me, Norman, early on for not only um, people who didn't necessarily look or act or grow up like I did, but, um, you know, being in relationship with people around the world. So a real international heart. I remember in my teenage years, uh, this was a poem that I found years later after I was already working uh, internationally, but I found this poem later on. I'd forgotten about it. I was at the age of 14 or 15, and I wrote this poem about wanting to go to a whole bunch of different places and see the world and experience other cultures. And so I think a lot of those seeds were planted me at a young age, planted in me in a young age. Um, I think one of the exciting things about uh, my family was that, um, although it was, you know, we were in a community that was not diverse at all; it was entirely white. Um, my parents instilled in us uh, at an early age really a, a love for everyone. Uh, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of their social status. And that took hold in all three of, of us as siblings, and I'm really thankful for that. Um, also, uh, a really exciting thing happened early on uh, in our lives as, as kids in my family is my parents had a real spiritual conversion. So they were in a denominational church, that didn't necessarily preach the gospel, uh, but I think at the age of 10 in 1970, when I was 10 and my older sister and younger brother, um, my parents had this conversion experience and began to go to a church um, that was then at that time known as a community church, non-denominational, and the word of God was taught there. And that, that was the beginning, I would say, of some really transformational work in my life. Um, and I would have to say, though, that I didn't really live for the Lord during my teenage years. Uh, but, uh, you know, that early grounding uh, in that church was tremendous. So I did that until I was 18. I was in a, a fairly sheltered family, fairly sheltered community. But seeds had been planted for something much bigger. So that's, in a nutshell, my, my, my youth. So I got a question, because you said that you moved to an area that was more affluent, basically. So does that mean that your parents came into a, a better financial situation, and so they wanted to move away from the city? 
It's a good question. No, it's because my mom always aspired <laughs> to live in higher in higher means or in places of higher means. Let's put it that way. No, my dad was, um, you know, he 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 was he was an engineer, but he was more of a blue collar engineer. He 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 managed um, you know the machinery at at various factories. Um, so, you know, he didn't make a lot of money and they didn't have any more money, uh, when they made this move. Uh, but I, I know it's always possible. You can always move to a more affluent area and still live. Um, you know, there's always people there that, that are not affluent. So we were, we were middle class, I would say on the low, little bit of the lower end of middle class, but certainly not, uh, affluent. But, you know, there were a lot of kids in our school that were that way. So me coming out of the city toward that 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 uh, that reality it was it was a bit of a shock early on, um, but no, our, our means didn't change. We were always kind of a little little bit of the lower end of middle class, let's put it, or middle class. Yeah. So um, I heard you say that you had a Korean friend, and I'm curious. You must have met him when you moved out to that area, since you said that. I mean, unless I heard you wrong, yes. you said that the school that you went to in the city was not diverse. Yeah, the 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 school in the city wasn't. Neither was the school in the suburban area that I moved to. Um, so I, what I said was there were there were no African Americans, there were no Latinos, there were a few Asian Americans, and he was one of the. I think we I think there were only two or three in in a school district that had thousands of people in it. Um, so, yeah, but we lived fairly close to each other and got to know each other well. And, uh, yeah, I'd say that was the beginning for me of a real interest. I remember meeting his mom, um, and she was obviously Korean and had met her husband during the Korean War. So he was stationed there and met her, and they got married and came back to the U.S. I just remember hearing his mom talking on the phone in Korean to her relatives back in Korea, and I would just sit there and listen, mesmerized at how interesting it was and what are they talking about. And when we, when we went, you know, I got to eat Korean meals there that I thought was so cool. Um, so I know early on Norman got to put this thing in my heart about, you know, uh, other ethnic groups, people who weren't like me, um, and then later on, just, you know, people who were not as blessed socioeconomically as I was, you know, having a heart for um, those folks and really trying to break down barriers to be in relationship with people who weren't like me. So <clears throat> you have uh, how many siblings, you say? I have an older sister and a younger brother. There are three of us. Oh, okay. So what was it like as far as, like, the relationship between siblings growing up? Um, good. And to this day, very, very good. So, yeah, <laughs> it's funny, Norm, because there's not going to be a lot of dirt in my family. Yet. So my sharing will be along the lines of, you know, what did I learn in life, uh, even, you know, sort of being blessed with, an incredible childhood, incredible parents that never got divorced, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I wasn't too close to my brother because he's five and a half years younger than me. My sister and I were closer in age, two years apart. Um, so, you know, we were together. and My brother didn't come along for another six years after me. Um, but we, to this day, remain very close um, and... We're all following the Lord, which is a real blessing. I think that that helps a lot, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, I think yeah, you know, normal normal squabbles of of childhood. Or my sister and I, uh, even though we're close to this day, and and we loved each other, we certainly got in our spats and in our fights, as I did with my younger brother also. Um, but we managed to get all, the, all through all those things and come out on the other end and. You know, early on, we had faith in Christ instilled in us through our parents and church, and that, you know, eventually in my life came came to the foreground. And my brother also. My brother didn't follow the Lord until he was in his mid twenties. I came to Christ when I was eighteen. 
So what was it that brought you to Christ? I was in university uh, freshman year and, um, you know, had, had lived a very much a party lifestyle in high school, did a lot of partying, um, and really loved that. Uh, at the same time, I always felt this kind of nagging little bit of guilt because, you know, I was raised in the church. In fact, I went forward at a young age, probably at the age of 11 or 12, um, and, you know, but I really didn't live for the Lord, so I might have made a salvation decision, but certainly he wasn't Lord of my life till I was 18. Um, but anyway, I got to college and, you know, found my set of partying friends there. But shortly uh, into the first semester, actually, uh, I had this amazing experience um, where uh, I was walking across campus. Uh, you know, I just partied the night before, um, stumbled home, don't remember any of it, and was walking across campus, and this Jesus freak, back then there, this was the end of the Jesus movement, so he had long hair, he had a jean jacket, and he had a one-way uh, badge uh, sewn on his, uh, or a patch sewn on his jean jacket. And he stopped me, and he said, for some reason I'm supposed to talk to you. And I was like, whoa, I don't, I don't know. And he goes, do you play guitar? I said, yeah, I'm learning. He goes, wow, okay, I want to invite you to my house, and we'll do, uh, you know, I have, a whole, I have a whole band set up, and we'll jam together. So I did that. And, you know, a couple nights later, um, there was this amazing experience happened where he began to sing, sing prophetically and spoke to me things that only I knew about my life. Nobody else, particularly I was new in this area. This is Western Pennsylvania at the time, and nobody knew these things. So I knew it had to be the Lord speaking to me, and it was the voice of the Lord. And I went home that night, and I wept in my dorm room, and I said, okay, Lord, um, this is it. I'm giving you my life. This is it. I'm going to make a huge 180 here, and I need your help to do this. And by God's grace, he did help me to do it. I, I plugged into a Christian fellowship at the university, um, you know, shared the story with all of my partying buddies, the vast majority of whom were very upset <laughs> that I wasn't going to be with them anymore. A couple of them also came with me to faith, so that was exciting. Um, but yeah, that, that's when it happened, freshman year, I was 18 years old. And in addition to that, Norman, three days later after that, I was walking across campus and saw a sign uh, on one of the buildings that said, Help End World Hunger. And I noticed there was a conference that they were talking about that was going to happen at a church that weekend. And I thought, okay, well, I'm a follower of Christ now. This is happening at a church. I better go see what this is all about. And I walked in there on a Friday afternoon, not knowing much, except that I had this interest in international things. And I walked out on Sunday afternoon saying, I think this is what God wants me to do with my life, to be involved with helping to end hunger worldwide and, and work for the poor internationally. And that started me down another road, which led to my career. So that was a real transformational week in my life in October of 1978. So now um, you're in, you're kind of uh, awakened to a purpose, and uh, you're following that path. And so kind of walk us through the process that God was taking you through um, because I know that so at some point in time this is going to lead to you meeting your wife. So let's let's walk through some of the things that were significant during that time. Yeah, that's good. So um, at the age of twenty, so a year year and a half later, <clears throat> I had an opportunity to go to the country of Haiti. I'd never been out of the United States. Actually, I'd been to Niagara Falls. <laughs> Uh, Ontario in Canada, but just across the border. That was the only experience I've ever had. So I was a suburban kid. You know, I never, I'd never even been on an airplane until I was 19 or 20 years old. Um, so here I am, 20, and I sign up for this missions trip 
to to the country of Haiti, and this was this was like ten years before mission short term mission teams were a big thing. You know, they were just getting started back in the nineteen actually nineteen eighty summer of nineteen eighty. And I went down to Haiti, went with a group of about ten people from some Methodist churches in western Pennsylvania. And I had an opportunity to stay on and took that opportunity. Um, and I actually, um, you know, I didn't drop out of university. I took a semester off, and I spent that entire semester in the country of Haiti living with um, a Haitian family uh, that was involved in relief and development work, church-based relief and development work in the southern part of the country. So that was so life-changing, Norman, for me. I mean, I'd never experienced anything like Haiti uh, in my life and fell in love with Haitians, with working to help people develop in agriculture. We had a water and sanitation project. Um, but mostly it was just getting to understand and know and taste the different culture and different people, learning some Haitian Creole so I could talk to people. Um, and that was really transformational. So it really solidified in my heart and mind this decision I had made, you know, two years earlier of saying, I think this is what I want to do with my life. I really felt like, yes, this is definitely what I want to do with my life. And so that process then led to a degree in international studies, and then it led to me uh, moving to Africa after university uh, with the Mennonite Central Committee. I was a volunteer for three years. First went to the country of Upper Volta in West Africa, which is now called Burkina Faso, and then uh, where I studied French and learned how to do water projects, well projects and then moved to the country of Chad for almost three years. Uh, and I worked in northern Chad uh, in a rural village, no electricity or running water, and learned both French and uh, the Chadian dialect of Arabic. So I don't speak it much anymore, but I used to back then, 30, 40, 35 years ago. And that uh, then led me down this path of, of international Christian relief and development work. Um, relief and development is, you know, the whole area of agriculture, healthcare, water and sanitation, uh, child education, all of those different areas, as well as relief activities when there was a disaster or an emergency. Um, then after working in a couple of other countries in West Africa, I, I really felt the need to get a master's degree came back to the U.S., came back to Pennsylvania, and went to Penn State University for a master's degree in uh, agricultural economics. And that's where I met my wife, Susan. Uh, we met fairly shortly after I arrived. I think I arrived there in May <clears throat> or early June of sort of 1989, and we met a few weeks later in, in a church that we were both part of. And things happened quickly. We were... Uh, engaged within six months, and then married six months after that. So uh, a year after meeting, we got married. Wow. So how old were you then? Uh, 29 when we met, 30 when I got married, and she was 27 when we got married. Yeah. So I'm really curious. What was it that caused you to um, – so, well, first of all, let's go back. What was your first degree in? International studies. Okay, so then, yeah, that's a so at this point in time, yeah. so at that time when you had the bachelor's degree in international studies, you really didn't know, I mean, did you know at that time what you were going to be doing with international studies? No. No, in fact, my dad said to me, can you get a job with this? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he, said, he, said, he said, can you work with, like, the United Nations? I said, I don't know, maybe. I didn't know that then that it's, like, almost impossible to get a job with the United Nations. There's very few people who get jobs with the United Nations. Oh, I man. didn't know, but I was, just, I was just following my heart. And, you know, that's what millennials do these days, right, Norman? I was doing that uh -huh. 35, 40 years ago, not knowing that, you know, doors would open. I mean, God opened doors one after another. Now, 
I didn't have much money till I was in my early to mid thirties. Uh, you know, I was a volunteer Mennonite Central Committee. We 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 didn't get um, we got we got a I think we. We got our room and board covered, and it was very minimal because I, I lived in a in a in a house that had no no electricity or running water. So mm-hmm. I think I think I was living on like like a thousand to two thousand dollars a year was were my total expenses. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? Oh man! Um, wow. So that was like thirty 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 five years ago. But um, <clears throat> yeah, but I, I think uh, you know. Eventually, then I came into jobs where there was good good pay and good salaries. But yeah, I just I was just walking through open doors, and amazing things happened. And in the end, God God took care of it all. That's that's basically my story, I think. So, Dave, I got a question. What was a good salary back then? Because you said good salary, I want to know. <laughs> well, so the first salary that I had. Well, you know, I had I had a um, a, um, a research assistantship in grad school at Penn, at Penn State, so that was that was like I was so I, I had my tuition paid by the state of Pennsylvania, and they gave me I think it was like twelve hundred dollars a month as my research assistantship uh, stipend. And so, like, I thought that was amazing, right? So that was only, what, that's only 15 grand a year. Um, but, no, my first job, uh, I was the country director of Food for the Hungry Chad, and we were married. We'd been married a year when we moved there in 1991 to the country of Chad. We went back to Africa for two and a half years to the country of Chad. My salary was, my starting salary was $32,000 a year, um, which in okay. 1991, that was that was decent money. And... And I had free housing and free use of a vehicle, so so that was decent. Yeah. Well, that 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 was pretty decent. I was just curious because you know, it was when you said a thousand to two thousand in a year, I was like, whoa, like <laughs> I, I just can't even imagine that. But um, right? Wow. Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. That's like that's like basically we. We we ate with um, with a family that lived in the village. We gave them like fifty dollars a month, um, and with that they bought like grain, and then they would buy some chicken and fish. And then we ate we ate one meal with them every day, um, and and that was great, you know. So that was that was only six hundred bucks a year for food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it pretty crazy, Norman. You can't do those things these days, but we did them. So, Dave, I got a question. When you were over there um, in the villages that you're talking about, were you um, – I know you were introduced to stuff that you never ate before or maybe parts of animals you never ate before or whatever, but, I mean, did you ever feel like – you were just grossed out by it or something. <laughs> um, the the thing that was hardest to eat, and uh, I mean, I, we don't want to go down this rabbit trail because I've eaten things that people on this call would never imagine, including monkeys, including muskrats, including monitor lizards. I mean, things that. Uh, if there's any PETA people that listen to this, they'll be they'll I'll, I'll get terrible vitriolic emails sent to me for the things I've eaten in Africa. But having said that, some of them were amazing. Hip, hippo hippo meat, for example, is amazing. Um, all of those things. But the thing that um, that was the hardest to eat, and and I often had to eat it because it was what was served a lot in in Chad around Lake Chad. We lived in a village that was right on the lake, and there were a lot of fishermen there. And it was this sauce that they would make out of dried fish, and these were sun-dried fish. So the fit they'd they'd sit them up on these racks in the sun, but the fish kind of rot before they totally dry. So they, they dry and rot at the same time. So they have this really strong taste. And it doesn't really cook. The taste never cooks out of it. So that, that the dried fish sauce was always hard. You know, it's like you have to hold your nose to eat it. The other one that was really hard 
to eat was they, they had a version of, of okra, gumbo. They make a gumbo sauce um, out of okra, and they boil it till it became like, like thick, thick, thick syrupy paste, you know. Um, well, the problem was is it, um, it would often felt like you were eating, I hate to say this on the call, but snots. So you, you'd like... You'd eat it, and you couldn't really even cut it and eat with your hands, so you'd always be trying to uh, So that was the other one. Oh, this this really strong ochre sauce that, that just, <laughs> it was hard to see how it put it that way. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, I just, I always had this thing about going to certain parts of the world where they eat things that we would never eat in America, and just curious as to, like, what would that be like? So you just kind of answered that for me because uh, I haven't done anything like that. I don't know that I will necessarily, um, but, you know, that's uh, – I think that that's a very special thing that people that go on certain types of missions trips are able to, I guess, sacrifice and also kind of accept as part of that that whole traveling, you know, what they're doing in that situation. So um, kudos to you for that. Um, now, I want to go share, back to can now. Share one more, one more, can I share one more quick story? It's really quick. So okay. we, uh, there's this one job I had in southern Chad, and I would travel for weeks out into rural villages. And, you know, I was helping them to build water wells at health, health clinics, health facilities in rural areas. So I would show up, and if they didn't have food to feed me, there was nothing that I could do. So I showed up at this one place, and it was the day after their weekly market, and they weren't expecting me to come. So I'm like, Dave, we have nothing to feed you. So they, I said, well, I have some money. He said, well, if you have money, we can um, go out and get some, uh, some buckshot, and we'll, you know, then we can go out and hunt. So, so we had to hunt our own food in this village. Like at night we'd go out and then we'd hunt deer and bring them home and then eat the deer the next day. So, yeah, that was that was one experience where we went out and actually had to hunt for our own food for that week. Wow. <laughs> so um, feel free after – I wanted to ask you another question, but after that I'll – I would like for you to feel free to share some interesting experiences that you've had over the years, you know, a couple of them. But um, sure. basically I wanted, I wanted to know, like, going back to when you said you felt like you needed to go back to college to get a master's degree in agricultural economics, and I'm just curious why. Well, um a lot of the better jobs at that point, if you wanted to progress in some of the organizations that are that are called non-governmental organizations, you know, international relief and development organizations, the World Vision, the Food for the Hungries, etc. Um, <clears throat> you know, to get those jobs, they were they were usually looking for people with master's degree master's degrees in certain areas like agriculture, agricultural economics, master of public health. Um, water and sanitation, like civil engineering, those kind of things. So it was really to be able to work at a higher level, work with organizations where I would have more impact. Um, so, yeah, it did sort of take me in a direction toward more of managerial and technical management of programs and, and less away from, you know, just hanging out in a village for a couple of years. Um, yeah, that, that was the reason why. So. I know that you met your wife. So you met her while you were in this master's degree program. Now, um, how did you, I mean, did she automatically already, you know, have interest in traveling abroad and going and doing missions and stuff like that? Yes, yes. So that was part of what drew us together. She it's very interesting. Somehow she had an, an, uh, an Arab friend who had taught her to count to ten in Arabic. So one of the first times we met, I said, oh, yeah, and I speak some Arabic. And then she, like, rattled off, uh, counted to ten in Arabic. 
<laughs> it was so wow. funny. It was like amazing. I was like, what? So, yeah, we had this kinship and affinity early on, and um, she had lived in Germany for a few years, so that's obviously not um, Chad, but it is another country where it's a different culture, a different language, and she really liked it and had a desire to live internationally again. Um, now, living in Chad was a whole different story, <laughs> and when we got there, those two and a half years, um, you know, she looks back on them as a great learning experience, but it was it was a tough country to live in uh, as a as a newly married woman. Um, but uh, God gave her grace, gave us grace, and we we ended up you know managing and, and flourishing uh, as much as we could. So um, yeah, but I, I would say that th th those seeds were also in her life before we met. So uh, I'm curious if you can share. When you say a newly married woman, what made it so different for her being newly married versus just a woman being over there? Well, I think number one is you're adjusting to a marriage. Number two, you're adjusting to a marriage in a completely different culture where you have no social group to help you, you know, through that. Or not, not that, you know, we, we are, our first year of marriage was, or second, that was our second year of marriage. I mean, it was good. But, you know, there's there's adjustments to be made early on in marriage, and she had no support group to speak of. Um, the, yeah, so that's one, the language. I was fluent in both French and Arabic, and she spoke neither when she arrived. So it's a very difficult situation when you're always relying on your spouse to interpret and translate for you. You, you know, you start to feel like you're, like like you, you should know this stuff and you don't. And so that was difficult. We had to work through that until she got, you know, more capable in the in, in French. Um, and she, she learned the greetings in Arabic, um, but really focused mostly on French. Uh, yeah, I would say those are the main things, yeah. Oh, plus it was very, I mean, it was very, the northern part where we lived was very Islamic. So, um, you know, you you know, women in society, you know, you had to wear covering, things like that. So, yeah, there were a number of things like that that were that were quite different from, from where she'd come from. Okay. So um, I am very curious about something that I've always been kind of, uh, well, since I really started paying attention, I've been very... Um, impressed with how people come to another country and they learn the language there while they live there. Not that they knew it before then, but after they get there, then that's when they start learning. I'm curious about the process of learning the languages that you learn. Like, how long did that take? And, like, what was it like for you? I mean, if you were coming over there not knowing anything, how did you adjust? It's a good question. Um, so when I was a, a volunteer with the Mennonite Central Committee, um, <clears throat> I went to the country of Burkina Faso specifically to focus on French language. So that was good because I didn't have to start doing my job. I, my job was to learn French, and that lasted for six months. So that was very, very helpful, and that's a good way to do it. Um, when I got to Chad after six months of French, I was okay. I mean, I could engage in um, simple conversations, uh, but then I started hanging out with a, couple, a bunch of guys who were college-age uh, men, uh, Chadians, and once they started speaking very quickly, though, I'd get super lost. So it took me a while, but, but my goal was is to really immerse myself in, in, in the language. So I always hung around people who were only speaking French, uh, even though it was super hard in the beginning because I, I felt left out of a lot of conversations. But that's the best way to learn. That's the way I learned. And then eventually I did the same thing with Arabic, moved to a village where very few sp people spoke French, and then it was Arabic immersion. And I just had to... Uh, you know, every day you learn another 10 or 15 words, and you just build over time. So would you say that you were pretty much just um, 
I mean, obviously, you're forced to to speak things and to learn whatever it is you need to learn to do what you have to do on a daily basis. But, like, being immersed in a language like that, like, how long, in your opinion, based on what you experienced, how long did you take to really become fluent? I mean, or do you ever consider yourself to have been fluent? Um, I was fluent. I, I... I was fluent in French, and I'm very close to fluency now. I was, yeah, I traveled to the country of Burundi and DR Congo uh, quite frequently now with my new job, and I was just in Burundi and DR Congo back in March. Uh, yeah, no, month of March, and you know, um, it takes me about half a day, and then I'm clicking on all cylinders again, firing on all cylinders again. So. Um, yeah, there's there's words I've forgotten. Yeah, because I don't use it that much. You know, I've, I've hardly used French at all in the last 25 years of my life. But it's still there, very close to fluency. I'm also fluent in Spanish. We moved to the country of Bolivia uh, in 1994, and we're there for almost <clears throat> three years. So French and Spanish are related. They're both Romance languages, both Latin-based languages, and that jump to Spanish came relatively easy. I was fluent within probably nine months and, you know, doing all of my business and leading a team of 150 people there. Uh, and we spoke Spanish all day long then. So, yeah, part of it is, is, is a natural gifting, which I believe I have, because languages have come a lot easier to me than they have to others. Um, so I'm thankful for that. Um, part of it is, is is immersion. You know, you have to immerse yourself and you have to be in uncomfortable situations where for a while you're not able to say a whole lot, except maybe the window's open or the door is closed. <laughs> you know, maybe that's what you can do the first few weeks you're with people. Um, so you feel kind of dumb, you know, because others around you are asking you questions, and you're like, I know you're speaking to me, but I'm not sure what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. So um, is your wife around, you know, the same kind of fluency or in those languages? Well, she was raising our kids in Bolivia, our, young, our older daughter now. She's 26. She was one and she, she was ages zero to three while we were there. Um, so she was, you know, at home more. She, uh, she didn't have a job outside the home. So her Spanish was more along the lines of functional Spanish around the household, shopping, uh, meeting with friends, things like that. My Spanish was all day long in a work environment. So based on that, I learned it a lot faster, yeah. Um, same with French, okay. I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so she's so, semi-fluent uh, in Spanish. She's semi-fluent in Spanish. Like, she's able to engage in all conversations. And only every once in a while she'll lean over to me and say, can you tell me what he just said there? But it's, you know, that's that's not all the time. Okay. Now, um, having children in a missions type of situation, how how was that for you? Because, I mean, uh, were you able, were you going into villages and having your children living with you in those villages or, or what? No, by the time that we were married, so I did all the village stuff, living in villages when I was single. Um, when we were married in the country of Chad, we lived in the capital city. We had a, we had a good house. Um, yeah, we even had air conditioning in our bedroom. So for many years as a single in Chad, I, I had no air conditioning, and it was about eight months out of the year, the the um, the high temperature of the day was was over 105 degrees, and at night it would only go down to about 90. So I did that without air conditioning for years and years. It's, it's not easy, but wow, you, you you end up like pouring water on yourself at night to cool down so you can go back to sleep. But when I was married, Susan and I had electricity in our bedroom. In Bolivia, we had a nice house and. We, um, yeah, we, we were in the capital city of La Paz also. So, you know, our, our daughter, you know, there was no real hardship. 
uh, for her. I mean, you know, we let her go out and play, um, and she had a blast playing in the playgrounds with other Bolivian kids. Um, and you know, she was out there and, and, and about. We didn't we didn't try to shield her from anything, but but we had electricity and running water and, and you know a nice place. Yeah. So were any of your kids born abroad? Uh, no. Both were born in the U.S. Um, her older daughter was born four weeks before we moved to Bolivia, and our younger daughter um, lived in Zimbabwe with us for two years in 2014 and 15, and that she was a junior and senior in high school at the time. So, yeah. Okay. So, um Yes, so we went now, back to Africa after living in the U.S. for many, many years. So we moved back to the U.S. from Bolivia in 96. And in 2013, we moved to Zimbabwe for four years. So it was kind of like this opportunity to go back and, and do work uh, overseas again. So have you been – I'm not sure because I didn't really hear it in your story, but uh, – have you been with the same organization throughout all these years, or have you changed several times, and what organization are you with currently? So I'm with the organization called LifeNet International. I've had about, well, I've had one, two, three, I've had three job changes since 1991. So one organization, Food for the Hungry, I was with for 22 years. Then I was with World Vision for six years. Then I was with, uh, then I'm with the current organization, LifeNet International, for a year and a half now. I'm the president of the organization. We work in four African countries, Burundi, uh, DR Congo, uh, Uganda, and Malawi. And what we do is we partner with church-owned and managed uh, health facilities. So these are healthcare facilities in rural areas that have nurses and other clinicians there who are providing medical care. And we come alongside them with a, a training and capacity building model where we help them improve the quality of health care, uh, improve the financial and pharmaceutical management of these facilities. So that's what we do. We come alongside these clinics. It's a franchise model. They pay a franchise fee, and then we have our services, plus we raise a lot of money. So the franchise fee only covers a small portion of our costs, but it is a model that we believe leads to sustainable changes in these facilities. So that's what I'm doing currently, running the U.S. office and the international organization, but running it from Washington, D.C. Okay. Wow. So I guess at this point when you go to countries, um, you're going in to coordinate stuff and, and bring it together and not to do the in-the-trenches type of work anymore? That's, that's right. Um, we, our, our organization on that end is all made up of trainers, training teams. So if you will, we're not doing the work for these facilities. We're doing work alongside these facilities, helping build their capacity so that they can do the work better. So that one day after the training's done uh, and they've demonstrated that their quality's improved, their, their finances are in better, um, better circumstances, they have better management of their medicines, their pharmaceuticals, their biomedical equipment, all of that, um, then, then we, then they, they graduate to an alumni status. And when they become alumni clinics, we're only visiting them once a quarter, and it's entirely based on, you know, helping them, helping brainstorm with them solutions to their problems. So we're not involved in training anymore at that point. It's just a, a touch point to, so that they know they still have a listening ear and someone who can provide counsel, but it's really advisory. And, you know, it's an advisory service at that point. So that's, wow, that's really interesting. So as far as, like, I know earlier you were talking about um, clean water and things of that nature or whatever. Are those, um, like, when it comes to dealing with these groups of people, are you, like, tapping, do you tap into 
other organizations that deal specifically with a certain thing like fresh water or certain educational things or whatever, or how does that, how does that work with what you're doing now? Yeah, it's a good question, Norman. So we're entirely focused on helping to build the capacity of these nurses and other clinicians to improve the quality of healthcare and to improve the financial and administrative management of these facilities that they manage, they run, okay? So if they have a problem with water, do they have a problem with they don't have enough like they don't have a good source of, of electricity, they don't have lights in the clinic, those kind of things, then we then we find help them find partners. And what we try to do is find a network wide partner and we're currently in conversations with a water organization that um, you know, if if we find a donor uh that to do it, then it'll it'll help to build um, boreholes at these facilities, but what has to happen is is that there has to be a sustainable management plan so that these facilities can, um, you know, buy a new pump, buy spare parts, manage that over time. So a lot of them do that by charging money for for the water um, that that people can get at these clinics. Um, so that so yes, we we try to enter into partnerships to make that happen. Now I know that when you and I have talked in the past, you talked about how you felt the Lord leading you to move down to the Baltimore area. Now was that based on the new change in the the, the job, like you where you are now? Or was that something that was like the Lord was leading you and then this just happened to open up? Uh, no, no, it was completely based on taking this new job. So we did not know. We were living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I was looking for opportunities to lead at the top again, to run an organization, and this opportunity came about, and I really felt like the Lord was opening the door, and he clearly was. It was a divine appointment that this door opened for, um, and it but it did mean a move to the Washington, D.C. area. Now, we had lived in Silver Spring, Maryland for nine years, from 2004 to 13, and we didn't want to be in the suburbs anymore. We thought, okay, well, how about if we go to the city of Washington? And we looked in Brooklyn, we looked in Petworth, we looked on the eastern side. So we thought, oh, we can afford a house there. Well, turns out that, you know, a single-family home, that's not a row house there, even row houses, you know, they're $800,000. So we thought there's no way we're going to do this. So we started looking up the train line, the Mark train line, and we've always had this affinity to Baltimore. When we lived in Silver Spring, we used to come up, uh, we'd, you know, go to the aquarium, go to baseball games, etc. So um, the Orioles, and um, so anyway, we just started praying about possibility of being in Metro Baltimore, and this great opportunity opened up here in the suburbs of Linthicum, which is by BWI, and we're right on the light rail line, so we can go into the city easily, go down to the the, the airport, um, and then also the Mark train station is only about a 10-minute drive away. So all that ended up being perfect, and it's not too bad of a commute. It's like an hour and ten minutes door-to-door for me, which for D.C. is not that bad. So that's that's why we came to Baltimore, and then shortly after plugged into church at Baltimore because we really you know, had a heart for a church that was closer to the city. We weren't too interested in, in what was happening here in the southern suburbs, so that's what led us up to, to, um, to that to that church plant. Wow, okay. Now, I um, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. You recently uh, went on a trip to Africa, and uh, I'd like for you to talk about the situation that occurred over there, that very um, amazing story that you have to tell. <laughs> yeah, so this was... Uh this, this was the country of Burundi, um, and uh, I was there visiting our, our programs, and the next day I was supposed to go on to Uganda, 
Yeah, we got a call from our country director in Uganda saying, Dave, the Ugandan government just said that any Americans arriving in Uganda will have to go into 14-day quarantine because of COVID, concerns about COVID. And I thought, well, I can't spend 14 days in a hotel room not talking to anybody, so I guess I got to reroute my trip and go home early. So I worked on that, and then I said, okay, but I have I have time to go one more take one more trip out to the rural area in Burundi to see some of the health health clinics that, that were there. And um, if anybody on this call knows the country of Burundi, it's very mountainous, and the roads are very windy in the mountains, and there are no guardrails. So you can probably guess where this story is going. On the way back, and this was on the way back not only to the capital city but to the airport, so this is to fly back to the U.S., before the flights were all canceled into the U.S. because of the COVID stuff. This was like the last chance I was going to be able to get on a flight. Um, we hit a slick spot in the road after it had just rained and unfortunately went off the road, went down 50 feet, down a very steep hill, rolled four times, and landed upside down with a crash. We were all unconscious inside the vehicle. The villagers who came... When they saw us, they thought they're all dead. They thought there's no way they'd survive, that we would survive a crash like this. But thankfully, God spared us. Not only spared us, but really didn't have any major injuries. Um, we all had concussions, so we kind of dealt with some of that stuff, the aftermath of a concussion. Um, and I broke some ribs from the seat belt, and somebody cut their foot and things like that. But, yeah, it was amazing what happened that we should have all died. Um, and there were, the other thing, too, was the place where we landed, where the vehicle stopped rolling, was like a farm field that had been terraced into the hillside. They'd been cut into the hillside. If that farm field hadn't been there, we would have rolled for another 150 to 200 feet, and you don't survive that when you're dropping down a hill. So, yeah, uh, amazing story of God's um, salvation, literally. And uh, just so thankful for his mercy and, and, and favor in that accident that not, nothing really happened. And we're just so thankful for that. And I got on the flight, uh, believe it or not, walked back up, out, uh, walked back up the hill. Um, vehicle came and picked me up and they took me right to the airport. I was in a lot of pain coming home, but I made it. So, uh, that's, yeah, crazy story, huh? Yeah, wow. Now, you said a vehicle came to pick you up, so what were you doing, like calling somebody on a cell phone while you yes. were walking up yep. the hill? No, no, the, the, the folks who were with us called. They called their, they, you know, our organization, LifeNet, other staff in LifeNet called and um, <clears throat> another LifeNet vehicle came and got me because I think we were only only 45 minutes from the capital city. So, yeah, one of our other vehicles came and got me. Got us. Got all of us, actually. So all of you pretty much woke up at the same time or something? Um, when I woke up, there was nobody else in the vehicle. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, some of the, the, the hood was smashed in or the, the front part of the um, – the windshield had been smashed in. I was in the back seat, so I was hanging there. Somebody with a machete, didn't know this till after, but somebody with a machete cut the seat belt, and I kind of dropped to the, dropped down to what was the ceiling and crawled out. Yeah. I think I was the last one to come to. Oh, wow. Wow, well, that's uh, definitely a, a, a powerful testimony right there. Um, now, what is it that, what do you sense that God is, what's the path, the track that God has you on that you sense in your heart from now on? Like, what's, where do you feel like God is taking you in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we all need to ask ourselves, ask ourselves that question a lot in our lives. You know, there, there are stages in life, and I'm about to head into a stage, well, I'm in a stage where I'm in the, the, latter, the latter years of my career, my working career. 
So I see myself doing this job at LifeNet. I mean, there's certain goals I have to help the organization grow to a certain level over the next few years. Um, but, you know, by 2023, 2024, you know, I can see myself moving more toward, um, you know, being an advisor and a consultant, thinking about legacy, thinking about how do I invest in the next generation so they're doing the work, and I'm, I'm advising. So it's sort of like a, a wisdom role, you know, as opposed to an operational executive role, moving more from an executive to, um, to, a, to a wise counselor, to a sage that's helping people um, who are executing to, um, to do better at it. Well, that sounds good to me. Um, well, Dave, I mean... <laughs> I don't know if there's any other any other stories you want to share of, you know, what types of things you faced during your time of um doing missions work and stuff like that. But if you have a couple other stories you'd like to share, I would love to hear it. Yeah, well there's a lot of stories. We call them war stories, right? Um uh -huh. Gosh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things. I've, I've had a lot of strange diseases um, that nobody really gets in the Western world. I've, I've survived all of them, thank God. Um, yeah, I had malaria like 15 times in my life. I had hepatitis A. I've had bilharzia, schistosomiasis. I had boils when I lived in rural Chad. So there's, you know, all that kind of stuff that in a sense, I had to walk through in order to live and minister in those places that, um, you know, God, God saved me and spared me from. I, I survived several uh, coup d'etats in, in a couple of different countries where, you know, there was rocket-propelled grenades raining down on the houses around us, and we made it through. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff. I think the most important thing, though, is just to say that, um, you know, I've lived a relatively unusual life for someone who grew up in the suburbs of a non-diverse community in northern Pennsylvania. Uh, very, very unusual, the path that I took. But regardless of what path people are on listening to this podcast, the most important thing is to just look for those open doors and look for divine appointments and say, Lord, I'm, I'm looking for that open door that you want me to go through next. And I'm looking for divine appointments because I know you're bringing people into my life so that, you know, I, I can do your work as an instrument of your peace. So I hope that's something that I've learned um, over the years and I believe strongly in, regardless of what you're doing, those two things should be operational in any Christian's life. So, um, yeah, those are just some words of wisdom at the end of this call. And it's been great to be with you, Norman. I'm excited about uh, Nunuma and the, the podcast and, uh, and wish you every blessing. Well, Dave, it was definitely a pleasure having you on here. It's been good getting to know you, and I'm looking forward to building even more with you as well. And I really appreciate you sharing your testimony. It was um, very inspirational. I believe that people that are listening will definitely get uh, inspiration from it and that they will definitely see how God moves in the lives of individuals as they turn their lives over to him. So thank you for being an example of that and, uh, and sharing some wisdom with us as well. So. For those that are listening, thank you for listening to the New Numa Godcast. We appreciate your help um, in spreading the word about our, our podcast. Um, you can simply just share, share posts, you know, share the uh, the page with all of your friends to invite them to like it, you know, things of that nature if you're on Facebook. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter. Um, also on LinkedIn. So. There's many ways you can keep up with us. Also, you can go to our website. We have a new website, www.newnuma.com. 
And you can go in there and subscribe to our, our email list and also uh, just check it out to see, to find out more about what we are about because, you know, this podcast is, you know, is somewhat limited as far as us speaking on who we are and, you know, what we're about and things of that nature. So it will help to get a little more insight into who it is that you're listening to on this uh, every week. And, uh, again, we appreciate you listening in, supporting, and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing good news from people who are listening to the show. Make sure if you're on iTunes, give us a five-star rating and a nice comment about what you've been getting out of the shows. We really appreciate you. Thank you again. God bless you. Peace.